How many of you have been here to other sessions that we've done? Most of you, okay. So what has kind of jumped out at you? I like to just do a quick recap. We won't spend much time on this, but we're kind of doing a continuum here. So I want to know what resonated with you. Anybody want to just chime in? What's something that meant something to you that you've heard so far? Commitment's where it's at. Okay. Mm. Who said that? You. Okay. Good for you. And, and I don't remember when I said that, but it's true. What's that? It's, it's two. Okay. I need to turn it higher. You didn't say that. That was the punch. I was going to say we were picking up just fine last night. Yeah. I, oh, I'm afraid if I do it there, it won't be. How about that? Is that better? Is that better? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So commitment is where it's at. And that's just sort of came through what I was saying. Huh? Okay. Literally say I didn't literally say it. Well, it's in there, but I didn't get to it because you guys were so talkative and I like that. So it's a good sign. Anybody else hear anything that was meaningful to them? That at home, yeah. there's, a, there's a part that the mother, for me in my book, I always understand that the mother plays a more intricate, more important part in the raising of a child because the bond that they have, but that the father has a place there too. Yeah. Although it can be different at times, it's must needed. That's right. You need both parents and God designed it that way and the child, the child that does the best and has the greatest chance, I should say, of thriving and flourishing as a child that had both a mother and a father. That's, that's where the research is and that's certainly what scripture teaches. It's not to say that God can't redeem bad situations and make up the difference and give us consolation prizes and the best of favors when life doesn't deliver something, but it is something to strive for and we need to leave that benchmark in place. So good. Anybody else? One more, maybe. Thoughts? What was meaningful to you? No? I, I love the idea that oh. God has these patterns. <laughs> and if we, even if, you, even if you say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Scripture. Yeah. If you go with the patterns that he has established, you'll be benefited and blessed. You're going to be blessed. It, that's such a. It's God makes His rain to shine on the on, or, or the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. I love that God is not sort of parochial in that regard. That He just says, "Hey, this is the way to be happy." Yeah. And if you do this, quite independent of how you feel about me, uh, you'll be blessed. That's good. Um, that's called moral philosophy. That's right. The fact that life works when you follow God's plan. Life works no matter what your belief system is, and. Ellen White, from what I understand, taught that it should be taught in our schools. Moral, I think she called it moral philosophy. Moral philosophy. Yeah, exactly. So I, I learned that in a very meaningful way when I worked in Manhattan at a vegetarian restaurant years ago. And I learned that there were stockbrokers and financiers that tithed just because when they tithed, they did better. They, they you know, they really uh, flourished financially. So um, there are a lot of Jewish people in the world that are not believing Jews, yeah. but they're practicing Jews because That's right. again and again it's been mm -hmm. shown that when it's they powerful. just do these things that That's the good. Jewish people were told to do by God and Torah, That's that good. they're benefited. That's good. It's remarkable. So what we're going to look at this morning is what I call the cost of belonging. What it cost God, the central point of my message this morning is what it cost God to give us this way whereby we could actually find our way to each other and experience loving and being loved because it cost God something to give us that opportunity, particularly in our sinful and fallen state. 
So we want to look at that cost this morning and I'm going to start out with a story about an individual named Jennifer Bricker. This is a picture of Jennifer. She is an amazing athlete. She, uh, she was actually um, adopted. Her birth family rejected her for a birth defect and she was adopted by the Bricker family and early on it was discovered that Jennifer had a proclivity for athletics, particularly gymnastics. She was so good at gymnastics that she won the Illinois State Championship as just a child. This is even more remarkable given the fact that Jennifer has no legs. There's Jennifer. If you want to see something amazing, go to YouTube, put in Jennifer Bricker, and you can see footage of her doing gymnastic tricks that are just so far beyond anything you and I could do with no legs. It's truly incredible. So that was the birth defect for which she was rejected by her birth family. There she is doing a handstand. I understand there's a, there's a Seventh-day Adventist group called the F5 Challenge and they do a lot of sort of ex extreme athletics or they do a lot of outings, hiking and different kinds of outdoor activities and they just had Jennifer Bricker come and speak for them. Here she is doing a handstand. Well the story gets even more interesting because when she was a child Jennifer fell in love with a certain prominent gymnast that was on the American team at that time. Her name was Dominic Mosianu. And if those of you that were, are old enough to remember when the, I think it was around the 90s, mid 90s, the American team won Olympic gold and Dominic Mosianu was on the Olympic team. Tiny little girl, Romanian descent, phenomenal gymnast and you know how kids develop these kind of hero relationships with athletes and she just had this affinity for Dominic Mosiano she just really identified with her well there came a certain point where Jennifer said to her parents look um, you know I'd really like to know something about my family of origin this is not an uncommon thing that adoptive children want to know something about their birth family and the mother said look I'm sorry but it was a closed adoption I don't have any information about your birth family but she went and got the file anyway brought it out opened it up and realized that there had been a clerical error and they had left the birth family name on the documents Jennifer Bricker's birth family name was Mosianu and at that moment she knew she was Dominique Mosianu's sister isn't that an incredible story so here she is with her uh, Dominique Mosianu and their their middle sister Christiana and you can totally see the family resemblance with all of them but particularly Jennifer and Christiana well of course she reached out to her and that became just a totally you know monumental event in both of their lives because they didn't know about each other really much and I don't think Jennifer knew at all and Dominique may have because she was a little older when Jennifer was born but who knows how much she recalled but the point is that Jennifer belonged somewhere that she didn't know she belonged and I think of all the people out there the people in Afghanistan the people in our country who don't realize that they belong not only to a family that they've never met but an elite family with someone like you know Dominique in that family but someone far beyond that the Father Son and Holy Spirit the most elite family in the universe Every man, woman, and child with whom we come into contact belongs to that family and the reality is that many of them don't know and that's the heart of evangelism is telling them that they belong somewhere that they don't even realize that they belong. You know, you've all been to weddings and the 
uh, bridal family gets to sit at a special table. Well, every man, woman, and child on this planet has a place at a very special table in the universe, and we have the wonderful opportunity of sharing that with them. But unfortunately, most of us aren't in that space where we can really appreciate what it means to love and be loved and how much God has loved us. I want to look at a text in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, and I want us to read it together, if you don't mind. And just think about the words as we follow this, uh, this stream of thought. Go ahead. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now just stop right there. Don't you love that word, but? I'm going to write a book one day called The Butts of the Bible because this is such a discouraging and despairing picture here. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, both sensual sin and relational sin. And then it ends with hateful and hating one another. We're seeing this in Afghanistan right now, the very worst, most horrific manifestation of this basic sinful tendency toward hatred. And then there's this beautiful word, three-letter word. What is it? But, and things are about to really brighten up, guys. Let's read this. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now stop right there. That word appeared is a beautiful word. It's the word epiphano. What does that sound like? Epiphany. An epiphany. And what's an epiphany? When it's, something happens that alters your life completely. That's right. It's something that comes to you in a sudden moment. And like he said, it alters your life completely. It's like that light bulb moment when you suddenly realize something really profound that you didn't realize before. The only place, the only other place in the New Testament that I know of where we see this word epipheno is when it's talking about, uh, you know the story of Zechariah and he was, uh, he, he doubted that God could give his wife Elizabeth a child. You remember that story? Yeah, and he went through a period where he lost the ability to speak. Kind of a lesson in there about don't misuse your talents because you might lose them for a while. He goes through this whole crucible and then ultimately the child is born and he writes on a tablet. What did he write? He said his name is what? His John. And in so, in, in so doing, he like affirmed the prophecy that had come to him and he sort of undid his mistake and was given the ability to speak again. And then he speaks forth this amazing poem and he talks about the incarnation of Jesus and he calls him something like the day spring from on high. It's really beautiful poetic language. And that word epiphano appears in that passage. And so Jesus is our epiphany of God's character. And so here we see it in this passage again that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared this is not just talking about when I came forward at the altar when I saw what the preacher was preaching or when I had that moment with God for myself this is talking about a historic event right. that occurred on planet earth for all of humanity whether they saw it or not the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared in Jesus not by works of righteousness, let's read it together, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so God gave us this wonderful epiphany in Jesus. And I just want to ask a question here. So how do we move from hateful and hating one another to loving and being loved? Because that's what we have just been promised in the book of Titus. We can actually move from hateful and hating one another to loving and being loved through the mercy and power of God, through the power of the gospel. So I want to look at that question for a moment here. And I want to look at a passage from the book, uh, Steps to Christ. And if you want, we can also read this together. So it says that it is impossible for us, of ourselves, to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil, and we cannot change them. Education, culture, the exercise of the will, human effort, all have their proper sphere. But here they are, what? Powerless. Powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life. There must be, now pay attention now, there must be a power working from where? Within. From within. So it just comes from inside of me, right? I mean, I have all that love just deep down inside of me. It just needs to be coaxed out. Is that right? Well, no, that's humanism. That's the idea that the goodness is inside of us and this just needs to be cultivated. And she just got done saying that education has its proper sphere, but it's powerless. So ultimately, that power working from within is also a new life from where? From above, before men can be changed from sin to holiness. And that power is who? That power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God, to holiness. So this is a little diagram that I've come up with. And I love this because it shows us that we do have a bucket, right? We have a bucket, and that bucket holds love, you know? 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I have not love... It's not just that the love is all around me or it flows through me. I have it. You know, there's a certain way, a sense in which in our human vessel we can hold God's love. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. So we have a bucket, but the bucket has a limited supply of love. We call it natural affection. So I'm going to be able to love my children. It's all hormonally mediated. I've experienced it myself. You give birth to a child, your system gets flooded with oxytocin, and you start to obsess about that little thing that all can do is eat, cry, and poop. That's all it can do. And you just obsess about it. You love it so much. That's natural affection. The sexual attraction human beings feel for one another, what we were just studying about last session, is also a form of natural affection, that romantic bond. And then there's friendship bonds. You know, human beings are naturally affiliative, and we love to have friends, and we relate to our friends, and we have a lot of pleasure in friendship. Those are all forms of natural affection. But have you noticed that those forms of natural affection have limits. Can a mother forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? What's the next word, guys? Yes, yes she may forget, but I will not forget you. So God's love surpasses and sustains beyond the point where human love 
cannot go further. So there's a limited supply in our bucket, but fortunately there's a source supply outside of ourselves, and that is God's love pouring into our vessel and mingling with those various forms of natural affection and then flowing out to others. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So God's love is our power source. We read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, um, that the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so here it is. God pours His love into our human hearts through the Holy Spirit. So God's love is our power source, but it's also our guiding principle. So what would happen if I went down to the river? I live on a, actually on a lake. So if I went down to my lake, say the power went out, we had a hurricane, happens all the time in Florida have a hurricane, you've got no power, maybe your pump isn't working, and so you go down to the lake to wash your dishes and you end up poisoning yourself with man-eating bacteria that are in all the water sources in Florida, but whatever, you know, say I'm desperate, you know, and I'm dying. I go down to the lake and I've got a basket and I'm going to get water in the basket. How well is that going to work out for me? Is it going to work out well at all? No, because it's not the proper vessel to carry the water. So the vessel must be fit. So God can pour all of the agape love into our hearts that he wants to. But if our vessel isn't fit to carry that love, it'll just dissipate. It'll just go to nothing. And so God also provides guiding principles whereby we can become a fit vessel for his love. So let's look at a text about that. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Let's read it together. For the love of Christ compels us. Now wait right there. That word compels can also be translated constrains or controls depending on the translation. So it keeps us basically within boundaries. It, it creates a form in our lives because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So clearly this love that compels us is what kind of love, what specific type of love the love of Christ for humanity, and also a love that will die for all, a self-sacrificing love. That is the kind of love that keeps us within boundaries. That word is, by the way, suneko, that Greek word, and it means to hold together, to compress, or to arrest, to keep something within boundaries. We see it also in Colossians where it says that um, in him all things, talking about the creatorship of Jesus, in things all, in him all things what? Hold together. Hold together. Boy, you know your Bible. In him all things hold together. All things have form. All things have definition. If there wasn't that definition, if God's love didn't keep creation within boundaries, we would dissipate into nothingness. We would be dust in the Wind. I've heard that scientists have, have postulated that all the actual solid matter in the universe could fit on the head of a pin. It's really just rapidly moving particles kept in motion and kept in order by a loving God that if he forgot about us for one moment we would fly into oblivion. Um, second law of thermodynamics, every system left to its own devices always tends to move from order to disorder, its energy tending to be transformed into lower levels of availability, finally reaching the state of complete randomness and unavailability for further work. So the bottom line is loss of order means loss of structure. Loss of order means loss of structure, and that applies as well to our moral existence. Human beings 
that lose moral order, moral integrity, moral form, moral structure dissipate. Their love dissipates. We can no longer carry the love. Maybe that God pours it into us, but we cannot carry it in a meaningful way into relationships if we don't observe the timeless principles of the Ten Commandment law. Amen? Because the law of God is really a description of how life and love work. It's, it's a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's that. It's commands. They're called the Ten Commandments. It's not just a descriptive document, but it's a descriptive document as well. And it tells us how life works, how things stay in the kind of boundaries that enable us to carry God's love into our day-to-day -day experience. And if you don't think that's relevant, if you think this is oozy-goozy psychology, guys, you're wrong, because it's about preparing for Jesus to come, because heaven is a place of perfect, interrupted love. And if we don't lo learn love this side of eternity, we've lost our chance. That's how important it is. All of God's laws and principles have to do with enabling us and facilitating love in human experience. So I'm going to go back to my original question. What did it cost God to bring us from alienation to belonging? I want to dig down into that question. Do you want to know the answer to that? What did it cost him? I know you know that the snap answer is the cross, but let's dig down into how that worked out in Jesus' experience, because it's so important that we kind of empathize with God, you know. So let's take a look at what it cost God. Let's look at this statement here. Do you love this statement? Is it meaningful to you that God is love? When you think about the fact that God is love, what do you immediately think of in terms of who is the beneficiary of that love? What do you think of? God is love. Who's the object of that love? Humanity, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? But was this statement true before any created being existed? Was it true? It was most definitely true before any created being existed. So this isn't only talking about the love that flows from God. It's talking about the love within God, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the original family. Amen? Let's look at some texts here that help support that. You know, oftentimes the Old Testament will give us in sort of shadows and implications, things that are more explicated in the New Testament, things that are more given more detail and, and uh, in the New Testament. So let's look at these texts that give us kind of a general sense. These are called triadic passages because they mention the Godhead three times, or they mention a person of God three different times. So try on number 6, 24 to 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. How many times is the Lord mentioned? Three, three times. The Lord is mentioned three times. And then Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. How many times is God mentioned? Three times. And then Daniel, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. How many times do you hear, O Lord? Three times. So what we see in the New Testament is more specificity. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the what? Spirit. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of who? So you see God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus mentioned in that passage. And then, not to be uh, discounted, the Great Commission. 
Read it together. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let's think about the number three for a moment here because clearly God is three in one. And don't ask me to solve that mystery because it's beyond my ken. But let's try to understand in the natural world and in kind of our day-to-day -day existence how stabilizing the number three can be. This is just kind of an interesting aside. I don't want to make too much of this, but the number three is a very stabilizing number. Think about the color wheel. How many primary colors are there? Let's think about music for a moment. Those of you that are musicians, how many notes do you have to know before you know what chord it is? To know what chord you're playing, how many notes? Three notes. How many chords do you need to know to know what key it is? Three. So even in music, three is a stabilizing number. What about in uh, physiology? Like, Let's take this microphone stand as an example. How well would it work out if it had only two legs? It wouldn't work out well at all. There's no such thing as a two-legged chair that is anything but a death trap. Human relationships also tend to triadify. A classic example of this is the man and woman unite their lives in marriage and they ride off into the sunset and they have uninterrupted romantic bliss for the rest of their lives. Is that right? No, they typically, not in every case, I always say married couples should always have children, some of them biological and some of them spiritual because I think it's important to married couples to give from the wealth of their love for each other to other people. That's a very important part of strengthening that marriage. Well, God knew that it would strengthen marriage to give parents children. And that's part of the reason he did it. And so man and woman ride off into the sunset and then Junior comes along and he challenges the marriage. There's actually quite a bit of research on the quality of marriage, the happiness, particularly of uh, women. I think it's both actually. After a child is born, actually going down a bit. But I think that over the long haul, because I've experienced it in my own life, children bond couples. Children bond couples. So it gives us a chance to love in a more meaningful way, in a deeper way. Um, think about the relationship between the parent and the child. You just feel when you're a baby like, I'm my mother's universe, and she's my universe. And then what happens? Typically, another what? Another child is born, and we have this thing we call sibling what? Rivalry. But it isn't always there. Sometimes siblings really love each other, and ideally, another child is included. It does not disrupt, but rather it strengthens that human relationship. And then what about friendships? I have seen best friend kind of situations not go well because people become too exclusive. There's nothing wrong with having a best friend, but... But if you lock out other people and you develop a closed relationship, it can really harm that relationship in the long run. So I think really healthy friendships have more of an openness and the opportunity to, if you may say, triadify. So again, here's our question. What did it cost God to give us a chance to love? What did it cost him? Let's think about this for a moment. God is holy. Amen. He cannot allow the presence of sin. For one thing, he would destroy anybody that carries sin into his presence. But he also can't abide by sin. There's just something so 
so just incongruous to sin in his very nature that he just pushes back against it in the most visceral way, I guess you could say, even though God isn't a physical being. But there's just this animosity between God and sin. And yet these children that he loves with an everlasting, unfailing, and unfathomable love are all covered over and riddled with sin. How does he save those children for eternity when they are riddled with sin? Well, he devises this plan. We call it the gospel. And he, he finds a way whereby he can cover them over with the righteousness of his son and in so doing create an environment in which the children within that covered situation can grow to a place where they can even tolerate a holy heaven because we have to go through character transformation to be fit for heaven there is a process of becoming fit and so that's what the gospel is it's justification and sanctification it's God you know, taking us under his wing, so to speak, and covering our sins with his righteousness. But it's also God growing us to where we are beings that appreciate holiness and can love and be loved in the way that is necessary to inhabit a holy heaven. So we see this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45. It says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus is being called what? In this verse, he's being called the last Adam. Adam is the head of humanity. This is an expression of something that theologians call the in Christ motif that you find often in the letters of Paul. And it's a very, very beautiful and powerful study to dig down into. But I want to just look at it for a moment um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Let's read this together and kind of get a taste for what this is. And, and again, I don't think this passage, when it talks about uh, being alive in Christ, is talking primarily about my personal experience. It's talking about Jesus functioning as the second Adam and giving the, the kind of the basis for that experience, but to the whole human race. This is historic fact that this is talking about here. So with that introduction, let's read this together. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Oh, where were we? Dead. What was going on? We weren't doing good. We weren't holy in any way, shape, or form. We were dead in trespasses, but he did something for us when we were what? When we were dead. That's when this happened, okay? So when we were dead, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. Now notice the parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. Righteousness by faith and this in Christ concept are very intimately linked, and you're going to see that twice in this passage. So he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together read it with me, in the heavenly places, in Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. There it is again, that link between in Christ and salvation by grace through faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his what? His workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him and we could just all go home right now I mean that is just such a wonderful passage so a little warmer way of conveying this in Christ concept is another phrase that scripture uses adoption isn't adoption really a beautiful thing and so this is what God did he adopted the human race in Christ now tell me something when does adoption occur and uh, at whose initiative does adoption occur typically adoption occurs when an individual is a what uh, a grown adult or a teenager it's typically an infant right and so who is the initiator of the adoption the infant I want to be adopted I'm over here no it's the who it's the parents seeking out the relationship with the child and this is the case in the heavenly adoption of the human race that Christ saw our helplessness and when we were without strength in due time Christ died for all of the good little boys and girls right no for the what for the ungodly so when we were adopted in Christ we were adopted into the most elite family in the universe unfortunately not all people will accept that adoption ultimately I've known many parents of adoptive children the children often can walk away from the adoptive family reject their value system reject all the things they were raised with it happens interestingly enough Dominique Mosiano the gymnast divorced her parents because of financial mishandling you can kind of see the thread they reject a child for a birth defect and then they they exploit their gymnast daughter for the money and so she divorced them when she was 17 years old this kind of thing is going on more when kids become famous and very moneyed so it can happen and adoptive children certainly can reject their families and unfortunately God is gonna lose a lot of children and my heart aches for him because I can only imagine the pain but what did it cost him that's the question I want to ask I want to talk a little bit about what happened to Jesus on the cross from the standpoint of human psychology I am in a doctoral program right now and I have a concentration in traumatology and I'm writing my dissertation on an aspect of trauma and so I've had trauma for breakfast lunch and dinner for the last three years and so I want to just take a look at what happened to Jesus what was his experience there on the cross as he is experiencing the weight of sin coming upon him and the hiding of his father's face the the innate hatred of God for sin and then Jesus feeling like that is personally directed toward him and the inability to escape that feeling can you imagine just for a moment what it was like for him to feel personally rejected by the father that he had loved from eternity so I want to read this statement from some traumatologists in relationship to that the intensity of trauma related emotions and sensory motor reactions often disorganizes the individual's cognitive capacities this is why we do fire drills with children we know that under stress those children will do the wrong thing or the stupid thing or they'll walk right into the fire so we drill into them what they should do there is a, a compromising a disorganizing of the individual's cognitive capacities interfering with the ability for cognitive processing and top-down regulation is what we call it in traumatology the ability to think and then act 
top-down regulation. This phenomena has been described as bottom-up hijacking and is a frequent source of problems for trauma survivors. So I want you to take that and apply it to what Jesus experienced there on the cross. He's deep in trauma. We know he died of the physical ramifications of overwhelming emotional trauma. He died of a broken what? He died of a broken heart. So he's in the process of that. Can he think and reason through all of the vast knowledge that he has in his omniscience or even reason from scripture as to why he is experiencing the rejection of God there on the cross? No, he cannot reason through it, I don't think. He's just one big flooded ball of emotions and he's just completely overwhelmed with his sense of rejection and what does he say in the midst of all of that trauma he says my God my God he's not even calling him his father anymore he's saying my God he, you're still my God but I don't feel like you're my father right now and so I can't use that term of endearment but my God you're still my God I'm still faithful to you why have you forsaken me I was once part of, I was one of the three, and now I'm outside. Notice that there are only two mentions of God here. Remember the triadic passages? O Lord, see, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. He was always one, part of the three. Now he sees himself as outside the three. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did it cost him? We almost lost him. When our condemnation extinguished his glory, when our vindication required his story, the price of our joy, his woe, the price of our yes, his no, to gain our entrance extradited, blighted, benighted, alt-left, alt-righted, the price of inclusion, exclusion, to buy our admission, extrusion, you know what it cost him. For a moment we lost him when snuffed out by our metastasis, a cancer that was never his, he nevertheless arched his back and bellowed, where have you gone, my God, my fellow? What did it cost him? Eternity lost him, scarred forever, flawed and severed, defective, a tumor gouged out, rejected, rejected, the price of our fortune, his loss, the price of our favor, his cross, the price of our embrace, his stabbing pain, to buy our belonging, the words go away, the price of our welcome, his eviction, the price of our exoneration, his conviction, the price of our well done, his shunning, the price of our healing, his red blood running, our entrance, his exit, our soundness, his decrepit, that's what it cost him. People, have we lost him? Because all he wants now is, I'll take it. The invitation of the forsaken is that we not wasted everything he lost to us at infinite to him, but no cost to us. I wonder, do you want to just thank God for the opportunity to experience love in our human realm in our, within our human limitations, can you see the, the price that was paid? Jesus experiencing exclusion so that we, we can be part of. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to learn about how God can give us a really satisfying, deep, and profound love for one another within His family, the church. And we're going to dig down into that and learn more. Do you want to be part of that? I do, and so I, I hope you'll come tonight and I'll be able to share with you.